This is Bill Herndon at Piranha Gear, and I'm looking forward to getting me some Karate Cafe. Hello again, everybody. It's Paul with Karate Cafe here with an old episode. Yeah, it's an old episode, and it was an episode that was supposed to be out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, sorry for the delay, and sorry for being sorry once again. Dan and I will get back in the massive Karate Cafe studio and uh, get some more episodes out for you pretty soon. But until then, enjoy this little blast from the past. An interview with Shane Franklin. Also, don't forget to buy cool stuff at karatecafe.com slash Amazon, or just go to the website and donate. We appreciate it. Also notice at the beginning, cool little blurb from our good friend and sponsor, Bill Herndon over at Piranha Gear. For those of you who have donated, don't forget to call in and leave your little spot, and uh, we'll get that on so everyone knows that you, yes you, support Karate Cafe. And if you would like to do one of those, all you need to do is go donate, and then record your own little spot, too. Cool, huh? So here's the show, and we will see you on the interwebs. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Karate Cafe's podcast. I'm Gene Myers, a student of Shorinu Shorin uh, Khan Karate, and uh, I'm joined tonight by uh, the usual uh, cast of characters. Pete Shambo is another student in Shorinu Shorin Khan, and Paul Wilson is a student in Shorinu Kenshin Khan Karate. How's it going this, uh, this evening, guys? Good, Gene. Thanks. Hey, Gene. How's it going tonight? Well, great. Um, we've got an extra special guest with us tonight. Um, Marine Corps Master Gunnery Sergeant Shane T. Franklin is currently serving as a staff non-commissioned officer in charge of the United States Marine Corps Martial Arts Center of Excellence at Quantico, Virginia, home of the Marine Corps Martial Arts Program, MCMAP, I guess is, uh, is the, the, an acronym for that. He served for over 23 years in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he's, uh, he established the uh, McMap Far East School in Okinawa, Japan. He's taught close combat courses in the Marine Corps since 1988 and conducted military martial art exchanges with a number of countries, including Australia, Korea, Mongolia, and the Philippines, and extensively with the Japanese Self-Defense Force Combat Instructor School at Camp Asaka, Japan. Shane began his martial art training in 1980 and has trained in Wicheru, Shitoru, and Shorinru. He trained in Okinawa for seven consecutive years, running his own branch of the dojo and serving as an assistant instructor at the Shorinru Kenshinkan Humble Dojo for five years. He's fought in the K-1 tournament and has trained several fighters for this tournament. Welcome, Shane. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Um, uh, how did you get started in the martial arts? Uh, was it just, I mean, were you, were you in the Marines at the time? No, I was a, a kid living in Michigan. And, you know, I guess like most other people, you know, watching movies and not having a real understanding of what martial art was other than, other than you know, Kung Fu Theater on Sunday and the uh, you know, typical Bruce Lee movies that came out. Just something that I was, for some reason, gravitated towards. And I was about 16... 15, walked into a local dojo. It just turned out to be a an outstanding Wichiru dojo ran by Sensei James Thompson, who's one of the top Wichi guys in the States, and been kind of doing doing martial arts ever since. Hmm. Are you ranked in uh, Wichiru? I was a Q-belt. You know, I studied for about a year before my family moved. Uh, I got into Tishitoru, and then practice on and off, you know, mainly just, you know, kids beating on each other after school type things. Uh, joined the Marine Corps and immediately got involved with the, the close combat programs, and then uh, 88 got certified as a close combat instructor. How did you, uh, how did you get started in children room? Um, I'd been stationed in Okinawa a couple times before, but never had the opportunity to train. In 90, got to go back, in 97, I checked in Okinawa and I got put on a headquarters staff instead of an operational unit, so I wasn't really doing a lot. I had a lot of time to start training. I met a uh, Marine Master Gunnery Sergeant named Taco Aguilar, and <laughs> he start, started training with him on 
on base, and then a couple months later, he took me out to the Homewood Dojo to start training, and I linked up with uh, 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 Sensei Kisei, Nisao Kisei, and then with uh, Grandmaster Fusei Kisei, and started training out at the Hombu, and after a couple of years, you know, got the black belt, started uh, teaching out there, started, picked up the uh, the uh, Tengen Dojo branch from Francisco Aguilar when he left, and just been rolling with it ever since. I had an opportunity to work out with uh, Aguilar Sensei a, a year or so ago at a uh, seminar down here. He's a great guy. Now, he's 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 like a very uh, the picture of a like the humble martial artist, and he's a, a great technician. Yeah, yeah. I've been really lucky in my martial art career. It seems wherever I tend to stumble into, I, I've, I've met some really good people that you know brought me in and, and got me started. You know, in Michigan with with Sensei Thompson, who you know, I, I got to meet again on Okinawa when he was visiting the uh, the Shohei Ru Association out there. Um, Taco took care of me when I first got in, and I guess you know saw saw potential for taking over the dojo when he had to rotate off Okinawa and, and got me out in town right away training at the at the Hombu. Hey, uh, Shane, for those uh, listeners who didn't quite pick it up, Shane and I are part of the same association in Kenshin Khan. Um, how did you, how did you you already in close combat instruction at that point, and or and then how did you get into it to McMath? Well, the Marine Corps had various close combat programs for a long time. They had a program in the 80s called LINE, then it transitioned into a close combat close combat instructor, instructor trainer program. Um, I met up with a one of my Marine Corps trainers for, for special operations, a guy named Kelly McCann, who is uh, runs Crucible Security as part of Kroll, which is a worldwide security firm. Uh, he certified us out as close combat instructors in 88, and I started teaching then. Um, McMap came around in 2000, and I got certified at the end of 2000 and certified as an instructor tra- trainer at the beginning of 2001. Um, so it was a kind of like a, a back-and-forth thing, doing civilian martial arts, doing the Marine Corps close combat, getting back in civilian martial arts, but with all the units I've been with, we've always taught close combat. So it's just kind of been back and forth over all these years. And, uh, tell us a little bit about McMap. I know it has a belt system as well. And uh, can you just give us a brief rundown about when people, is it something that's required? Is it something that people can volunteer for? How does that all work? Okay. Uh, the Marine Corps martial art program, you know, slightly biased because of my billet, but the, the reason I'm in this billet is because of it. I was planning on retiring about three years ago is I believe the, the finest close combat system, combative martial art in the world today. Um, it's required for all Marines at entry level to be certified at the first belt level, which is TAM belt, which is about 30 hours worth of training. So all recruits going through the recruit depots at San Diego and Paris Island have to test out and earn a TAM belt. All the officers going through the basic school here at Quantico, which is co-located where, our, where the Center of Excellence is at, it's required to get a TAM belt before they can graduate TBS to, to go on out to the fleet to be an officer. Um, the first level TAM belt, like I said, was about 30 hours. Uh, it's based on the Raiders World War II close combat syllabus. The uh, Raiders World War II close combat syllabus was 30 hours in length. We've modified it for safety, took some things out, added some other things in. One of the big factors is the mental and character development with it. So it's a the synergy of three disciplines. There's a physical discipline, which covers all the techniques, combative conditioning, um, a mental discipline, which is professional military education, the study of the art of war, and a character discipline, which is based on Marine Corps leadership principles, core values, and uh, troop information classes. So the, the object is no matter how long a Marine's in the Marine Corps, whether it's for three years or, or 40 years, that when they go back out, they're a better person, better citizen than they were than when they came in. Uh, the follow-on levels after TAM belt, it's a comprehensive system, and a Marine's supposed to do it throughout his career. Second level is gray belt, which is another 43 hours worth of training. Uh, excuse me, 34 hours. Then green belt, which is an additional 43 hours. And we move to brown belt, which is 48, I'm sorry, 52, 
and black belt, which is an additional 63 hours. Um, there's a belt test with this, all the techniques that are required to learn um, that they have to test out for. But if I'm testing out for gray belt, I'll have to do five techniques from tan belt before I can take my gray belt test to sh make sure that I still remember them or to show that I still remember them. I take my green belt test. I have to do ten techniques right from each previous belt, and it progresses up the, up the line. So when I'm taking my black belt test, I'm doing a sustainment test of 20 previous techniques that are randomly picked before I do the test. The uh, um, training's comprehensive in the hours. For every belt after, there's seven hours of sustainment on the previous belt. So part of that uh, 34 hours at gray belt, seven hours of that is on tan. At green belt, 14 hours. At brown belt, 21 hours, seven on each of the previous belts. So it's mandatory as a minimum to take that, take that next test. So is it set up? Say you're on base and you're and you're you're in a unit. Do you have you know class time Monday and Wednesday is our you know two hours a week that we're working on this and is it set up essentially like a martial art class? Well, it's really decentralized. Uh, a lot of units run it in block training like that, like a traditional dojo. Um, but we're trying. What we try to implement is it's integrated into a unit's physical training program. Hmm. So they'll do an hour of of PT and then the last. 15 to 20 minutes, they work on some of their techniques. So they do that, you know, three to five times a week. They're doing an hour to two hours of training throughout the week, but it's integrated in with physical training. So they're getting their combat conditioning in and their technique training in. A lot of the units, though, run it in a block where we'll do two hours of nothing but McMap every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, by Marine Corps order, there's a minimum of two hours a week that they're supposed to do martial arts training. Okay, Shane, I was in the Navy. What's this PT you talk about? <laughs> Physical training, everything from uh, uh, running, calisthenics, weightlifting. Uh, we try and gear it towards combative conditioning, so we do everything in boots and utes, boot utes, uh, body armor, helmet, rifle, sappy plates, full equipment load, rough train movement, obstacle courses, um, buddy calisthenics, buddy weight exercises, body weight exercises. You know, throwing sandbags around, lifting logs, things like that, and then after you got a really good sweat and a little uh, little fatigue going on, then start doing the martial art techniques. Yeah, yeah. See, I sat up in bed once, so that's kind of the same thing. <laughs> um, so, so when they're training, they're really training in the equipment with essentially the equipment and, and clothing they're going to be wearing in combat and, and on patrol. Check. I mean, that's that's the whole aspect. We have a uh, you know progression of training. If you look at civilian martial arts, people do civilian martial arts for, for themselves. We're trying to develop ourselves, take care of ourselves, make ourselves better, and we enjoy it. The Marine Corps martial art program is a weapons-based, team-based system. We don't care who the ultimate fighter is. You know, you know uh, Pat Melitich, Matt Hughes, or um, I'm trying to think who the current heavyweight is, Tim Sylvia can come out and probably kick my butt in a ring, maybe. But if I kid up and get a rifle and bayonet and I bring my fire team with me, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure I'm going to win. Because <laughs> um, you know, I'd shoot them if I had to first. And you know, we, we've done stuff with other professional mixed martial, martial artists. Most of them are really good about, we understand what you do. Let me see if I can show you stuff that will help augment what you do. We've had some come in and say, if you don't do you know, my form of jiu-jitsu or whatever, then you're wrong. Well, when I've got flak jacket, helmet, rifle, and a bayonet on the end of it, that double leg takedown just doesn't work anymore. You know, so is that kind of. I'm sorry. Is, is there you know a constant review of of the techniques that you guys do to you know ensure they're going to be efficient and you know workable? Yeah, all all the time. Um, we're getting a lot of the lessons learned back back from Iraq. Uh, over half the staff has at least two tours in Iraq right now. Um, I've got a couple with three. I've got a guy coming in November that's got five tours. What we're looking at is what, what Marines have to do and what techniques they're using and how we can make them better. So some of the things that we've changed in, we have a block of unarmed restraints. We have wrist locks, basic wrist locks, uh, compliance holds, come-alongs. Uh, you know, one of the main ones that's used in Iraq is an armbar takedown. But they're using it as a buddy armbar takedown. So rather than just one guy executing the technique, 
you've got a four-man team, one's providing outside security, one's providing inside security, the other two are grabbing hands on this guy and flattening them out and cuffing them. So we adjusted our training to do, well, we still teach it individually, but we also ramp up and teach the, uh, the team techniques. The training methodology, they start off in just uh, camouflage utilities and, and boots. They get proficient with that. Then we add on a flak jacket. Then we add on a flak jacket and helmet. Then we add on a flak jacket, helmet, and the, the sappy plates, which are the heavy armor plates that go inside the flak jacket. Then we add on their patrol gear or their tack gear that they're going to actually have to wear when they're executing missions. So it, it ramps up uh, in a progressive manner that makes sense, and it, it allows us to train safer. Now, are you going to uh, – does McMap, you know, you're constantly reviewing the, the techniques. Now, would you – Especially being looking at also from a, a traditional martial arts standpoint, would you say that you have more techniques than are probably necessary, or do you try and gear it to keep it, you know, simple, and fewer techniques and just drill out the heck out of those? Well, uh, right now we're sitting at tan through black belt is 184 separate techniques, but they're separate, but they're also congruent. The, the principles build on each other all the way through. For a truly combative art, we probably have more techniques than we need. But since we have a belt system, you know, that's kind of a give and take. A purely traditional, you know, Kodiyu art wouldn't have a belt system. You just know who's who by how they train. Um, it's also the whiff on what's in it for me. The belts help <laughs> provide the carrot for people to want to train because everybody wants to be a black belt. No one wants to be, you know, a white belt, tan belt, web belt. Um, I'm going to steal that whiff thing. I like that. <laughs> yeah, whiff What's in it for me? Um so I'd, I'd like to trim out probably about 14 techniques and maybe restructure a little bit over time. But we have to have enough to make it a legitimate belt system. But we keep to our core training, which is rifle and bayonet and weapons. You know, our most effective technique is trigger pull. However, you can't put a three-round burst into everybody. Some people you have to detain and you know, with, treat them with courtesy and respect as you throw them in the back of the vehicle to get taken to the you know, detainee processing facility. Oh, yeah. Do um, I just I totally spaced what I was going to ask you? Okay. Uh, I guess as far as oh, as a senior non-com, you're you're pretty much running the program. I mean, are you pretty much kind of guiding it now, the direction you want to go? You say you want to pull some techniques out, or you would like to. How much sway do you have in the McMap program? Well, yeah, I'm the senior enlisted guy, so I've had a lot of sway. I, I work for a lieutenant colonel who's the director. Um, and what we do when we do, you know, it's just not an arbitrary that, you know, I'm here, I think I have a good idea, let me change it. Next guy may have a completely different idea and just want to arbitrarily change it. So what we do, we don't do any technique changes or any major changes on the course for two years. And every two years we have a course content review board. We'll bring in a representative from all the satellite schools, which we have five satellite schools that train instructors around the Marine Corps, the May staff, and then selected individuals from each of the major commands. So each uh, MEF commander and division commander would send a representative in, so we'll have a, a board of about 20 people. If anyone has ideas to present, they provide a written proposal saying, this is what I would like to change, this is why, and here's my supporting documentation. And then that gets boarded. It goes around the board. We do a discussion on the, the merits, pros, and cons, on whether it'd be worth changing. And then we look at how is that going to affect the Marine Corps as a whole? How does that affect the congruency of the program? So, you know, if we just throw an arbitrary technique that it might be really cool, you know, you got your dim mock gallbladder 20 death touch, whatever, <laughs> that, you know, is in there but has no other basis with anything else we do, then we, we, we probably won't do it. But then it gets boarded. Uh, the colonel has the final say on yay or nay, but he listens a lot to the senior guys at the program that are out there that, that put the proposals up. Is is the, the colonel, is he a martial artist as well, or is he just trained through McMap? He's pretty much just trained through McMap. He did some boxing and wrestling back in his day. But, you know, it, it's not about uh, being a proficient martial artist. It's about being a complete Marine, which is why we have the three three disciplines that we do within within the program. You know, if Bruce Lee came into the Marine Corps today, he wouldn't be a black belt in McMap. He might be, you know, awesome at his Jeet Kune Do, but he doesn't know shit about being a Marine. So we balance out with the senior guys who have 
operational commitment or operational experience, the uh, the corporate experience, or not corporate's a bad word to use, the, the history and structure of the Marine Corps background to, to know what's going to make sense when we apply it or not. You know, the, actually the worst guys I find are the guys who have a limited amount of civilian martial art experience because their sensei and their style is all the best and they want to do their thing and it just may not really blend into what we're doing in the Marine Corps. Okay. Now, uh, as a senior non-com, you get to travel around and, and work with not only different bases within the United States, but you also get to train with other countries, uh, close, close quarter uh, systems. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I agreed to go ahead and take the orders to come here. I was in, in Japan running a school out there doing a lot of foreign country trips. Uh, and those trips really opened up a a lot of doors for me and a lot of understanding. Uh, my favorite and the closest thing to what we have is the, is the uh, Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force School in Camp Osaka. They've had a martial art close combat program going since 1957. Plus, you know, Japan's got you know a couple thousand year history of of close combat. So that opened up a lot of doors and a lot of experiences. Um, most of the countries, I was really shocked about how much traditional stuff they, they really knew or, or what they had and the amount of modern media influences that, that are on martial arts out there today. Um, I was in Mongolia, and our, our exchange, one of the, our exchange guys has lasted about, we were there for about a, about a month. We would train one day, they would come in and train the next day. You know, so we would teach, they would teach back and forth. About the third day, their colonel came in and said, our stuff is pretty much crap. Why don't you guys teach for the rest of the time? You know, and their, their instructor that was teaching was trained in China at the uh, People's Republic of China Military Combat Wushu School and was taking Jeet Kune Do in Ulaanbaatar. Yeah, I mean, that's Jeet Kune Do in, in Mongolia. I mean, that says a lot about how far it spread, but, you know, the applicability of what they needed to do, and you know, they were smart enough to see that. Um, but other countries, you know, we've been to Sri Lanka, the Maldives, the Philippines, Korea, Australia. We're heading back to Australia this fall. Brazil, I just had a mobile training team get back from Brazil uh, Friday. Uh, heading to Colombia. Uh, we've been to Spain. Um, all the different militaries here in the United States. You know, and there's a, a handful of other places we've been. But it, it's just a really great experience going out there to train with such a wide variety of martial artists and, and getting my Marines exposed to that. And it really solidifies their belief in how good our system is. Uh, we talked about, uh, you and I talked a week or so ago about some of this, thing, this stuff, and I wanted you to touch on uh, one of the things that came out of that conversation was you know, when you're traveling in all these places and you're seeing all these different you know, martial techniques, you know, culturally based martial techniques and all that. Are you seeing kind of a lot of the same uh, techniques? Are you seeing a lot of the kind of, with a little bit of different application or a little bit of different emphasis? Are you seeing stuff that's just, you know, all over the place? You know, it, it really, really depends. Like in Bangladesh, you know, their primary historical martial art is a, is a style called Bondo, which was a weapon system that evolved into, into empty hand stuff. Um, there's only so many ways you can effectively throw a punch or deliver a kick. There's only certain ways that the body moves, you know, so if you do a, a joint manipulation. Uh, those are real similar across the world. Uh, you'll see different variations with, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, you know, culturally, like the Indonesians do a lot of up and down movement for their size, but it's effective use of their body movement. You know, the, the Japanese tend to use a little bit more uh, body movement side to side and circular and not so much up and down for, for some of the techniques. But, you know, a punch is a punch, a, a kick is a kick. If you throw a straight punch and you follow basic principles of, uh, you know, not telegraphing, rapid retraction, uh, body movement by utilizing hip and weight transfer, uh, you know, striking with your first two knuckles, it, it's, it, it's all there no matter really where you go. You know, the wide variations would be, you know, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they want to go to the ground most of the time instead of standing up. Or if you look at a combative application like the Japanese, most of their stuff is 
stand up and you can under the ground, but if you've got a weapon in your hand and you've got, you know, even samurai armor or, or modern armor, why would you want to roll on the ground with all that stuff on? Okay. Hey, uh, I asked kind of that to get to where I really think that we're trying, we really want to go with having you in this interview is uh, the difference between traditional martial arts and com combative martial arts, quote unquote, uh, reality based, all that, all that madness. Uh, what I want to know is, and, and where I want to go with this now, Shane, is, you know, we've talked about, you know, you study Sean Rue, you studied a couple, three or four different uh, karate styles. You also study a sword art, correct? Yeah, I, I study a, uh, a traditional Japanese koryu called Yagyu Shinkageru with a, uh, a, a gaijin sword master who happens to be here in the States in Sedona, uh, Mr. Hunter Armstrong, who is phenomenal. I mean, he received Minkyo Kaiden from, from his instructor in Osaka, which he's the only living Westerner I know that, that has that right now. You know, it's not some horse crap that he went out and, you know, paid $500 for a certification. He trained for years in Japan and and received it. And that the, we want to go into the traditional versus combative arts. Um, said it goes back to why do you do a, a traditional art? pretty much you enjoy it and it should have some sort of applicability you know even within within our association there's people I don't want to train with because I don't like them personally <laughs> but we still study and do the same things they just may teach it different and I don't like the way they teach it didn't make them a bad person but if I had walked into their dojo I would have never done that style um, there's other people in our association that are phenomenal and they're they're good people, and the majority of the people that are within the association, which is why I'm still there, are good people first, and really talented second, and that just kind of keeps it going on. I enjoy what I do with them. Uh, you know, so the 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 end all question of what I wanted to get on, especially in our podcast, is yeah. training from you know simplifying. Uh, I'm saying it in a simple way: as you're training in. A, McMap, which is a combative art. I mean, it's for combat. It's for a military. And then you're also taking, obviously, steeped in traditional martial arts. You know, how is training different or the same in training with a purely combative art? Do you see quite a parallel, or do you see that there's you know stuff that need? Do they are they separate? Are they kind of the same? Is it the same mindset? What do you think? It really depends on what art you're in and what the how the instructor teaches. But from a you know just a, a good view of both, um, they, they complement each other very well. Uh, all the training I had did in in close combat had assisted me when I started my traditional training. All the traditional training I did really helped me in in the Marine Corps martial art program. And by doing both of them, when we were doing these country exchanges. Um, it really allowed me a better understanding and a better grasp of what the, you know, because there's a language barrier, obviously, with some of these countries. But the, the understanding of principles are the same. A good principle is going to be true, is going to transcend whatever style you're doing. I mean, hip placement, body motion, stance, all of that is going to be the same, have the same principles regardless of what you're doing. The... Uh, the, the years I did in Shodan Room when McMapp had picked up, said I, I took off way ahead of my contemporaries that were doing McMapp. Um, the spoon feeding of McMapp, we take a principle, you know, the old wise sensei teaching you, why do we do this, sensei? Well, you'll figure it out because they want you to figure it out and develop on your own. We don't have time for that in McMapp, so we cram it down your throat. This is why you do that. That opened up doors both ways, so I could see better understanding of why I was doing certain things in traditional martial arts, and traditional martial arts opened up, you know, more experiences and ideas for me in, in the combative realm. Uh, anything, guys? Yeah, I, I have a, a question. Um, being a traditional martial artist who also uh, teaches uh, close combat training, um, and, and considering that there's overlap uh, between the two, um, how important, Shane, would you say uh, kata is in, in training for traditional martial arts? Uh, you know, uh, I, I st 
still enjoy kata. I'm not ever winning any tournaments at it, but I do pretty well in kumite. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've heard the argument that kata is worthless. Well, the, the kata training I've done, empty hand, really taught a lot about body movement and body function and pattern recognition, which a lot of the training that you're doing in combat is, is pattern recognition and exploiting the pattern. Um, I think some of the ease I had in grasping some of these foreign foreign exchanges I've done and what they were doing, even if it was something completely different than what I was used to, was the fact that I did so much kata. Now, the other thing you're looking at on a military sense, you've got a large group of young, fit guys that they can bang on each other pretty good and not sustain too many injuries. Um, kata is a way of practicing those if you understand what you're doing with it to practice those techniques without having to take all the, the lumps and bruises and thereby sustain how much training you're going to do over a longer period of time. Uh, we don't do kata and McMap uh, because it's not culturally as acceptable for such a wide audience as it is if you voluntarily go do an, an Asian style that does, that does kata. Mm. And uh, probably all a, that time element you were speaking of as well. Yeah, we have to get the most bang for our buck, and that's straight into application. This is how it works. This is why it works now. You know, practice it and hit something. All right, good to go. Um, at our advanced level, our second degree black belt, we have six degrees of black belt in, in McMap. Second degree is a weapons-based training with a live blade bayonet, and it's called the combat engagement pattern. It's the closest thing that we have to a kata. If you've seen some of the live blade kendo work, kendo katas, or... There's a Japanese style called Jukendo, which is uh, a wooden bayonet trainer version of Kendo. They also have a, a live blade cut at the end of that. If you're training with, with live blades, you can only you know, hit somebody so many times before they just don't want to do it anymore or they die. So it's a very controlled two-man type of kata, kind of like doing the bunkai, hmm. but without making contact with the blades. So you know, that's about as close as we get to kata. But, yeah, I, I still do sword kata with my uh, Kodio system, and I still do Kabuto and, and empty hand kata for my Shoto Nu training. I see the value in that personally to help develop. Uh, I, when we talked the other day, and uh, on, also in your uh, bio, it says you did some K1 work. Did you, did you actually fought professionally? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I've got three... <laughs> Three pro fights. You know, I was never going to go to Tokyo Dome or anything like that or Battle at the Bellagio. They were uh, some of the smaller regional man matches where, you know, you get that's where you got your recognition to get invited to go fight in Tokyo and Osaka and stuff like that. Uh, when I was competing pro, I was 37 and 38 years old, so I was pretty much at the the, the tail end of my, you know, professional fighting career. Uh, as soon as I got to Okinawa, I started doing the the, uh, the point tournaments and the full contact tournaments and things like that, and that was always a, a blast. Uh, the point tournament stuff wore out pretty fast, but the uh, full contact and the and the uh, Kyoko Shinkai type matches were, you know, I, I would still do those just for fun. Uh, the K1, right when McMappa started off, I uh, K1 started getting real big in uh, in Japan. They had a regional club that was fighting down there and a friend of mine was a promoter and said hey how would you like to fight I said yeah that'd be great and didn't realize I was stepping right into a pro card but yeah it was, it's, it was pretty fun how did that training how did your traditional training or even your McNabb training how did that influence your training or your, even your fighting style for those fights I think the, the McMap training was more of a you know, that's just marine training in general. You've got more of a mindset of, I'm going to smash this guy. If he hits me really hard, well, that's okay. I'm going to hit him back even harder. I don't mind that. Um, and the traditional training, I think, is what really gave me an edge. The, the, the training for the full contact stuff I had received from uh, Isao Sensei at the Hombu, I think, paid off great, really big dividends. Here, um, I, I just did a couple of... Uh, stand-up matches yesterday for training here at the at the martial arts school. Um, most of the guys on the East Coast here in Virginia, they all they all do Muay Thai, you know, and that's the end beat all to end all kickboxing style. I come in with the traditional stuff and have have a pretty good time with it, you know. And 
I just don't really see the the the, the great advantage of doing Muay Thai over being really well grounded in a in a traditional Japanese system. It, I'm doing fine fighting against a lot younger guys. There's also an experience level there, you know. But you know, if you look at, there's not too many old Muay Thai fighters out there, and I'm looking at. Uh, uh, Grandmaster Fusakise, who's you know hitting his seventies and he's still teaching five five days a week. Yeah, I was telling these guys the the story about the last camp I went to with him when we were doing the crunches and he led all the crunches and we must have done a five hundred before each session yeah. and we had like three sessions that day. That's and, at least once a week at the homebu about five hundred crunches and about five hundred uh, hyper extensions on your belly up. Hey, yeah, yeah, we did those too. <laughs> yeah. And then Kishimoto Sensei would come in and we'd do 500 squat kicks. So, yeah, some good times there. <laughs> um, since you brought that up, that was one of the questions I had prepared to ask you is, uh, how did you find training in Okinawa compared to training here in the in the States? Um, where I'm at, I, I'm pretty disappointed about the, the state of martial arts and where I'm at. Uh, there's some good people. I just don't like driving an hour and a half to, to go train where I'm at. Uh you know, I'll be honest, there's seven dojos in, in Manassas, Virginia, which is where I live. Five of them are Korean styles that I wouldn't even do if they were free, just because the, the quality is so bad. Uh, there's an uh, American Kempo style, you know, not the bad mouth styles, but I haven't really seen them, but from what I have seen of American Kempos, it's not my type of thing. And then there's another Okinawa Black Belt Academy that I think is Wichiru based that I haven't had the chance to go in and see. Um, the, there's a guy in Woodbridge who, his name's Leo Dalla. He does a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class. Guy's phenomenal. And I would cross train in that if I could have the time to drive for an hour and a half to get there. Um, you know, I, I know people in the States, they're phenomenal martial artists. The, the majority of martial arts I see in the States though is more marketed for money than it is for really training hard. Mm-hmm. Um, in Japan, for the last five years, I never even paid for paid for training because I was running a dojo. Uh, we had a 2,000 yen a month black belt association due that I paid. I had two Shiredo gis bought for me, which, if you haven't been to Okinawa, that's a expensive, high quality gi. Yeah, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we would do, you know, socials, go out for dinner as a dojo of black belts, and the, the black belt association would pick up half the tab for that. Um, you know, I was talking to uh, Esau Sensei one night that if he came to the States, he could probably be making, you know, $300 an hour doing personal lessons because he's uh, just phenomenal. You know, right. his response were, it, it's not about money. It's it's about your heart, and my heart's in Okinawa, so I'll stay here and train. Okay. You know, and that guy teaches like six classes a day. You know, and our, our nighttime training, this is, you know, difference in, in mentality. Uh, I'd go to the homebu about 19:30, 7:30 at night. I'd teach my class on base. Go out to go out to the homebu, and we'd start between 19:30 and 20:00, depending on when the last class got out of there. I might get home by 01, and I only live 20 minutes from the place. If you're doing a good training session, everyone's just happy to be there and train. You finish training, you sit down, you have a tea or a or a beer or something, and you know discuss discuss things and you learn a lot during that last 20 minutes just sitting around talking with everybody you know it's that that family that that family bond you develop with the people you're training with and you know really spoiled with the level over there and you see that more in okinawa than here in the states well like i said i'm pretty limited here in the states i know there's some great people training here in the states there's some great styles great associations and I've cross-trained with some of them and, and trained with them, even within our own guys, the, the, the Kenshin Khan guys that are here in the States. Um, it's not convenient for them where I'm at to do that type of training. You know, they've got the, the Grandmaster Kisei is visiting the States right now, and he's traveling around. I fly Friday for Camp Pendleton for a week, then I fly to Camp Lejeune for a week, I'm back for a week, then I go to Australia for 10 days. So it's kind of hard to to make training outside of my my area, you know, a priority when I've got other obligations. Um, didn't, didn't you have, uh, didn't Master Kesey come out to Quantico, was it last year, year before last? He sure did. When he was out visiting, and that, that's one of the great things about the association. Um, 
he was in the area, and actually he wasn't even really in the area. He was in New Hampshire, and he was on his way to Brazil. So he scheduled a two-day layover in, in Washington at Dulles. And, you know, we picked up his hotel room and, and food for him for the two days he was here. And he came out and ran a, you know, a two-day seminar for the Marines here at Quantico. And we had a, a course on deck, so he got to train a lot of the future instructor trainers we have. You know, I, before, you, before you go on, I want to interject. I was on uh, bullshito.com or .net, uh, which I read fairly regularly because it's pretty good. And uh, one of the things they had on they had a, a message thread on there that someone had posted the article from that. And, and we're going like, oh, yeah, I would like to see that old karate master come up against some, you know, the, the close, close quarter guys or something. And, and what was your impression of that? <laughs> you know what? That's like 60 years of training right there. I wouldn't want to, unless I was armed and at a distance, I, I wouldn't want to mess with Grandmaster Kise. Um, there's a lot of guys that can go out there and bang really hard, really good, you know, close combat guys and things like that. A lot of really good sport fighters. Uh, he's not going to fight fair. And I, you've seen how he is. Whenever he's around, doing a demonstration, he'll pick the biggest guy out there to go grab and throw him around like they're a kid. And when you go and grab a Marine, most of them aren't going to be compliant to you and say, okay, I'm going to roll with you because you're an old guy and make you look good. They're like, you know, screw you, I'm not going to do it. And he'll still throw him around. You can either go easy or you can go hard. And if you go hard, it's going to hurt a little bit more when he throws you. And I think I've, I've sparred him a handful of times. I haven't touched him yet. He just kind of like smacks and moves and giggles when he hits you. So when, uh, he's, he's phenomenal. Yeah, I know. Just when you shake his hand, he always hits a pressure point and drives me to my knees every time. Um, <laughs> what I want to ask really you. like you. He doesn't do that to me. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, he's always smiling, so apparently. Yeah. Uh, he said um, you were talking about uh, one of the things that we talk about here in the podcast is, uh, you know, comparing the arts and, and – um, you know, being dynamic is one of the things that I always talk about, about being dynamic in your training. And you were telling a story the other week, and I'm I'm not trying to be Kenshin Khan specific here, everybody. I'm just, it's, you know, we're Kenshin Khan guys. And you were telling a story about you were sparring somebody and did a hip throw on him, and, and he didn't know what it was, but then Master Kise corrected you. Uh, okay, yeah. Run that story yeah. by there real quick, and then do you, do you see that more often than not? Is like, you know, there are traditional martial artists who just don't know certain techniques. That's, uh, oh, he, he knew what it was. He was just being, you know, facetious about getting to smack me again. Ah. Um, you know, and this thing, uh, with, the, with the school, I'm going to digress a little bit here. With the school I had in Okinawa, the, the, the McMap school out there, every time we ran a course, which is about six times a year, we would bring in a, uh, a, a guest instructor for a half a day. One of the Okinawan, actually, like five... Uh, grandmasters visited the school, a lot of the senior senseis, and, and they're all great people and all phenomenal at what they do, and all very similar in personality, but they don't really like each other, which is kind of funny, too. Um, we were doing kumite in the, in the hombu one day, and uh, my main training partner over there is a guy named Jerry DeVries. Jerry's an American who's been there for going on 17 years now. I mean, just a just a phenomenal guy, one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. And he's about my size, which makes it fun too, because I'm sitting about six foot two ten right now. He's about six foot two twenty two thirty, and he stepped in a little close, and I was able to duck under an arm, and I, I did a hip throw and, and dropped him, and he thought that was pretty cool because he had never done that before. So I took him through the mechanics of a hip throw, and I always know it's bad. I can see. Uh, and Kisei Sensei sitting in the corner, and he's watching. And he's got a, got one of those looks on his face, like that's all right. Keep playing around, not doing Kenshin Khan. He slapped his thighs and just kind of made a you know a little smack noise. Got up, said, "Franklin, you throw me." And I learned a long time ago. I threw a half-ass punch at him at a demo one time, and he smacked me and said, "Smacked me in the hand." He grabbed my hand and said, "If." I tell you, punch me. You punch me right here. You punch hard, and Hi. basically punch him in the face hard. So don't cheese it on him, or he's going to get mad. Hi. So I grabbed him by the sleeve. I'm trying to get a little off balancing going. I yanked on him real hard. He stepped forward a little bit, and I thought that was my shot. And I shot in to, you know, get the hips underneath the lift to throw, and he popped me right in the throat. 
stopped to throw mid mid tracks. I let go, backed up, and he goes, "I don't know judo. Why I let you grab me like that?" I'm like, yep, okay. Point taken. You know, why why would he want to fight my fight if he doesn't have to? And you know, that's part of the part of the maturity of of knowing what your style is. So, good learning lesson on my point. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, going from style to style, when you train with somebody who's another style and, you know, to use, to use probably not the correct word, they're all eat up in that style. They're not really thinking about a hip throw. They're not really thinking about whatever. And to be able to react to whatever is happening, I think, is more of a mark of, you know, a true martial artist and, you know, someone who's geared for, you know, defending themselves is being able to adapt to what's going on. And, you know, yeah, you don't have to step out of your style. You don't have to, you know, switch. You know, I need to know Muay Thai because this guy knows Muay Thai. I need to know Jiu-Jitsu because this guy knows Jiu-Jitsu. It's taking your style and figuring out how yeah. to counter. Or, you know, and that's where Grandmaster Kise is so good. He's, you know, he's able to immediately, you know, he sticks to his principles and his style, what he's been training for so many years, and just does what he wants to. And, you know, enforces his will on you, what what he's going to do. You know, and that's, you know, part of the, the problem I have with all these 26-year-old grandmasters in the States with eight different black belts. <laughs> you know, you could spend your whole life and study one style and still never know everything in that style. There's always something. Yeah. And, you know, these jumping around and they get a bunch of uh, low-level belts and then they start trading them for higher belts. You know, and now all of a sudden they're, you know, not even 30 years old. They're 10th down or... Hell, I even saw a 12th down. I didn't even know they went that high. But you know, yeah. I, I think other. I think in judo they legitimately go that high. But you have to be like voted by everybody in judo for it. But yeah, we've we've talked about that before on the cast. These uh, mail order masters and yeah, yeah, I, I got a certificate in the mail that made me a seventh degree in a style that I've never even heard of by someone that's never even met me. Uh, go run high. Quickly, or... yeah, I just sent him a letter and said, please don't consider me. I've worked too hard for my civilian credentials and my military credentials that I don't need to be associated with you. Hey, Shane, and, and we've talked about this before, about the, through McMap, you've also trained with other Okinawan masters. Uh, who are some of the, the big names that you've trained with there? I just... I think my, one of my favorites was uh, the Grandmaster Shimabukuro, Izo Shimabukuro, who is the... Uh, One of the Shodanru guys up in Ganoza, his older brother was Tatsu Shimabukuro, the founder of Ishinru. Mm -hmm. um, Tatsu's, or uh, his uh, current guy, Tatsu passed away quite a few years ago. Uh, the guy that inherited the style is a guy named Grandmaster Weizu, Angie Weizu, who's still a still a ninth on, last I checked. Just a, a phenomenal guy. Um, Kuchi Nakamoto. Goju guy, uh, Takahiro Higa, who's a uh, Shohei Wichi, Wichiru guy, um, Kazu Tajima, uh, Manasori Ikihara. Ikihara's, this is fun. he's a chief gate guard for Camp Courtney, and a lot of these guys don't know. You know I, I feel sorry for the drunk Marine that comes through when he's on the gate and tries to cause any, any trouble because he'll probably thump him pretty good. Um, Tensho Tokamura, who's another Goju guy. Uh, Iha Kataro, who's a uh, Kabuto guy. Shoto Nuru Sedokai Khan. There's just been so many of them. And, you know, they're all just such good people. When, uh, as far as uh, when they have them come in, do you have them, they're demonstrating their style? Or are they, you know, talking technique? Well, we have them come in and, and do a, a demonstration when they come in, into the school. Part of, part of the etiquette stuff is you get someone to invite you to go meet them so you can give them a formal invitation. And, you know, the, the, the standard one is you meet them on a, you know, whatever day. You sit down, you have tea, you get a history on their style, and it, it, it's pretty phenomenal. You've got, you know, some of the, the best martial artists in Okinawa, these, these grandmasters giving you a class on Okinawan karate history. And it's phenomenal because the history is all the same up to about 1920, 1930 with these guys. And then the family stuff starts splitting off and, you know, who's who's in charge of what now. Um, 
and then from there, if they like you, they invite you over to the dojo. You go to the dojo. You get to get to train a little bit with them. You know, I, I would never say I was a student of any of these guys. I, I've met them. I've talked to them, and I've got to train with with some of them, and they're phenomenal. I mean, they're they're really good people, and they really want to, you know, show their art what they can do. When they come out to the school after we go through all the preliminary stuff. They'll bring anywhere from, you know, four to 20 people from their dojo, and they'll do about 45 minutes of kata and kabuto and, you know, breaking things and, you know, kumite and stuff like that. And then we try and do, you know, we'll do a reciprocal demonstration for McMap. takes about 15 minutes, you know, real quick and hard of all the stuff that we do, and they, they really like that. And then we'll spend a half hour to an hour letting them teach the Marines, you know, some of their specific style. And that's also opens up an invitation for the Marines that are in Okinawa. Hey, if you like this guy and you like what he's doing, his dojo in this location. So you've already met the initial entry protocol of going to train with these guys. Yeah. And, you know, it's just it's phenomenal ability or phenomenal opportunity to take advantage of the culture that's over there. You know, when, when you're in a dojo, you know, you're in that dojo. You're not supposed to go train with another dojo unless your sensei says it's okay and they know the guy you know and i had to explain that to to, to kisei sensei was you know hey go minasai shigoto this it, it's work i have to do this i just can't bring you on base every time <laughs> it's, it's not fair and he said yeah that's fine because he knows i'm always going to train there and the people i go see all these other grandmasters they know who who my home with dojo is and they never try and like hey let's try and get this guy over to ours it was a lot of good courtesy and respect. You know, they never really say anything bad about anybody else, and it's just, just a phenomenal opportunity while you were there. Yeah. Um, Shane, uh, do you uh, recommend any of your instructors, like if they're training in Okinawa, to go to these masters, or even if they're in the states, to uh, train in any traditional martial art? Or well, we recommend. Actually, I never recommend anyone personally. You know, like I don't say go say. Isao Sensei, I'll say, hey, here's a dojo you should check out. What what I tell them is, go to a dojo, whether it's in the States or whether it's in Okinawa or wherever you're at, you know, ask to, to watch a class. If they don't let you watch the class, then you probably don't want to train there anyway. You know, and then watch the students when you're watching the class. If the students are doing the stuff that, that you like to do, that you would like to do, and they seem to be proficient at what they're doing, then the instructor is probably good and is, is conveying the, the lessons to the students in a good way. If the instructor looks fantastic and the students look like crap and there's not a lot of you know, structure or there's not a lot of courtesy and respect going on among the students, then it's probably not a good place for you to train anyway. So watch the students, and if you like what they're doing, then that's probably a good class. You know, and everybody's got different things. Like I said, I started off with Wichiru. I'm still built better for, for, for Wichiru or, or the Nahate hard styles of, of martial arts. I don't move that graceful. And I don't mind getting hit. But when I look, you know, I see all the Shodanru guys are like 80 years old and still teaching. And I see the, you know, the Wichiru guys with their gnarled hands and everything. That's kind of figured, you know, quality of life. I think I'd rather do something that's going to last until I'm 80. <laughs> but, hey, uh, you know, uh, go ahead, Shane. No, I'm just... It, the individual styles is what you like to do. You know, if, if it's a good instructor and you've got a good a good group that you're training with, you know, there's a lot of a lot of good got good people out there and a lot of good styles. Hey Shane, what what do you see? I, I guess it's a two prong question. Where do you see the future of martial arts going within the military? I mean, do you see it maybe being picked up some by some of the other branches? I mean, I was a submariner, so we used to do train with weapons of opportunity. Which was I was all about being in Shonru, you know, and uh, we'd grab a wrench or grab whatever, and you know, to repel borders. Uh, but where do you see that going as far as the military, and then also maybe where do you see the future of martial arts in general? Well, within the military, the the army started the Modern Army Combatives Program. Um, you know, they've got a late start on what we've been doing. Plus, they're they're growing it from the ground up. We had it forced down, Commandant Jones forced it down, said everyone will do this, so we had a lot of buy-in right from the beginning. If the boss says this is good and you're going to do it, then everybody says, hey, Roger, that is good to go. Um, 
their theirs is more sport based. They do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Muay Thai, and, and they do some scenario training to kind of bridge the gap. Um, we've done a lot of training for the Air Force. Uh, the Air Force Special Operations Command is looking at starting their own program up. Uh, we've been down to Herbal a few times, helping them set up their own instructor cadre. We just got back from Pope last month, helping them set up an instructor cadre for the unit down there. We've done a couple of the security squadrons at you know Hill Air Force Base and then out in Mildenhall, England. Uh, we've done some training for some of the Navy units in, in combatives, usually ones that are getting ready to deploy. That's more of here's some training. You know, you might want to think about doing this. I, I think as the benefits of having a, a martial art within your organization gets out there more and more, the, the senior officers and, the, and generals and the other services are going to see how much it can do for them, you know, all the intangible benefits it brings with you especially if it's a, it's a character-based system, you know, character mental aspects as well as the physical aspects. If you're just doing close combat, you can train a monkey to do a spinning back kick. And if you've seen <laughs> that MPEG on the thing, the, the monkey knows to do it on, on order, you know, kick, and he jumps up, spins around, breaks the board. But he doesn't know when and when, when and how the right application of that is. So you need someone a little bit smarter in that. We don't want to train thugs. We want to train people to make them better and make them more competent at whatever they have to do. You know, and then all the traditional reasons for doing martial arts about increased physical fitness, increased confidence, you know, increased ability to handle yourself no matter what your situation is. Um, I think it's going to continue to grow. Uh, I think it's going to continue to grow so well that, you know, that's what I'm trying to retire to go do is, is work in partnership with, uh, with uh, RGI in setting up a military law enforcement martial art program that we can set up for unit-specific or department-specific people. Um, changes in the civilian martial arts, you know, there's a lot of uh, reality-based systems coming out. There's a lot of mixed martial arts systems coming out. Um, some of them are, are crap, that it's, you know, some guy made something up, threw it together, and he's selling it, but he's a good salesman and people buy it. Uh, some of them are, are really good. You know, if they're principal based, the guy can get it all across, it usually comes out pretty good. Uh, mixed martial arts is really making a big impact on the civilian world. You know, you know I, I don't agree with the UFC, it's as real as it gets. You go to the streets of Fallujah and kid up and get some ammo, that's about as real as it gets for martial arts. Uh, you step into an octagon, and, and most of the guys that we train with in the, from the mixed martial art community, they acknowledge it too. That's a that's a sport with rules. It's not ultimate. It's not unlimited. You know, there's rules involved with it, and there's safeties involved, and there's a good chance you're not going to die. Yeah. You know, 99.9 percent you're going to die. Not going to die. Um, but it's making a lot of the uh, civilian guys take a look back. You know, like you know, traditional guys take a look back, and they might start thinking that you know maybe I'm not as good as I think, or maybe this isn't this isn't the real stuff. And, you know, I'd have to disagree that traditional martial arts, you know, if you train someone in, in a sport fighting technique and someone in a traditional style, the sport fighter is going to take off a lot faster. You know, it'd be a lot more effective fighting for a while. But that traditional guy is going to catch him and then he's going to sur surpass him when he starts, you know, realizing that there's sport fighting and then there's I'm going to poke you in the eye and kick you in the nuts. You know, and that kind of takes the fight right out of somebody. Yeah, we've actually touched about that on the boards. Um, hey, Shane, do you, uh, we read that you have a seminar coming up uh, for something. You want to talk about that real quick, and then we'll wrap this up? Oh, I get to do an advertisement plug. Huh? Um, part of the, uh, <laughs> you know, part of my uh, transition out, um, I'm partnered up with a company called Resolution Groups International, and I'm developing martial arts for military and law enforcement units separate from the Marine Corps. Um, right now, any military unit calls us and requests assistance for doing martial arts, we'll go, we'll go treat, teach and train for free. Um, we can't really do so much with law enforcement agencies because we don't, there's a, a risk there. Uh, but as an introduction, uh, we're running a, a joint seminar with the uh, Bujinkan out of Springfield, New Jersey. Uh, Mr. Jack Hoban, who's the owner of RGI, is sponsoring me for a uh, 
a four-hour seminar on 12 November from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And it's going to be an introduction to military and law enforcement combatives, uh, weapons retention, weapon disarmament, you know, a little bit of uh, realities of edge weapons defense, which that's a whole other subject that's really crazy. All the trained knife fighters out there teaching classes. Um, it's open to anyone who's interested in, in, in training. Uh, primary audience, audience is directed towards military and, and law enforcement, but it's not a military law enforcement specific seminar. It's open to anybody who would like to attend. If you go to uh, winjutsu.com, W-I-N-J-U-T-S-U.com, you'll see the seminar schedule up there. Very good. Um, uh, Shane, thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast, and uh, we, can really, we can't thank you enough for, for your service to our country and, and, uh, and all you've done um, in that regard. Um, this has been a really informative uh, uh, discussion, and, and I've learned an awful lot about Kenshin Khan, about, about, uh, about uh, McMap and, and uh, self-defense, and, and it's really great to get your take on, uh, on uh, these different topics today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. You know, it's it's kind of ties in with a little bit of the recruiting there. If the martial artists think the Marine Corps has something to offer them martial art-wise, it might be a, you know, get somebody else in the Marine Corps. Again, our guest today has been uh, Marine Corps Master Gunnery Sergeant Shane T. Franklin, who is currently serving as a staff non-commissioned officer in charge of the United States Marine Corps uh, McMap uh, program at uh, Quantico, Virginia, and at Fourth Don in the Shorinru uh, Kenshin Khan. Thanks again, Shane. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That was a, that was a really interesting conversation he had. I, the thing I took away the most was was um, Master Kisei when when they were trying he's trying to do the hip throw. And Master Kisei said, why would I try? Because a lot of times, I mean, we all study a different style every once in a while or maybe more than every once in a while. And a, a lot of times you're into, like with judo, you're into, well, I've got to learn this. I've got to learn these judo moves because you might need them. But it was interesting. Master Kisei was, I, what I took away from it was he said, no, you bring it back to your style. Why would I want to fight the way the other guy fights? And with all due respect to Tony, who's a uh, sixth down in our style, now, he's a law enforcement officer who's been, <coughs> excuse me, who's been training in uh, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And the reason he's doing that is so that he, he says more and more people are training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He wants to learn about it so he can counter it instead of doing what, what Master Kisei was doing and relying on your own style. Well, I, I, could, I could see studying it enough so you can at least recognize what they're doing for Pat, like, what uh, what uh, the gunnery sergeant said, uh, so you can do pattern res recognition. Yeah, sure, but you know, I mean, he's he's been training in it for several years now. You know, I mean, so. Yeah, I see. But the thing that I think that Shane was talking about, and that Master Kise was mentioning, uh, is the fact that you know, instead instead of fighting fire with fire, you you adapt your extinguisher to you know whatever it is. Which, which I think, you know, is probably more, and, and of course, you know, Master Kisa is coming to this with, you know, 50 or 60 years of training. So it's probably easier for him to adapt and say we would, or, you know, Tony would against, you know, if someone tackles him and takes him to the ground, he's not necessarily going to be able to do techniques, you know, from from karate that would be, you know, outside, because he's law enforcement, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's such stuff that he just won't be able to do. But I mean, if he can escape a, a clinch and and put an armbar on a guy, and then he'll you know take that back to karate. But maybe you know maybe he's looking at it as trying to get a firm grasp of you know the framework to enable to counter it. Whereas I think Master Kise probably just has so much experience, you know, just for you know decades and decades where he can shift gears a lot quicker. And uh, he's got a much more, a better feel of, you know, body dynamic and where someone's going than, you know, and I, I'm sure he knows what a, how a head throw works. You know, so, yeah. so, so, so there's probably uh, there's probably pros for both of them. So, yeah. is there any uh, any parts of of the conversation you guys found particularly interesting? 
Well, I thought that, and, and the main thing that I talked from what I got from Shane when I talked to him when we were setting this interview up, and and today is is how much he says that you know traditional martial arts and combative martial arts, you know, there's only so many ways to punch people. There's you know there's only so many ways to kick people. But the fact that he was talking about the mindset and what you bring to it, you know, crosses all the martial arts. You know, if you're serious about it and you take it for what it is, you're gonna get a lot more out of it than if you're just kind of there. Doing it, you know, like Taekwondo guys, I, I I rag them a lot because I I don't think a lot of their stuff is uh, is worthwhile for a self defense standpoint. But I fought some Taekwondo guys and on the floor, you know, and sparring, and I've been lit up by them because on the floor when they can do their kicks, that's where they're at. But when I would move in and clinch them, and I would do a hip throw, they're you know it's gone because I mean a lot of them don't train to from a self defense standpoint. They're training from a you know point finding standpoint or just you know working out standpoint. It was nice to hear him talk about uh, kata, you know, and how you can use that if you can't go, if you're not going to go hard, you know, as long as you know what the bunkai is, you know, it, it's a good alternative to you know getting out there with the young guys and beating the shit out of each other and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I thought you were going to like that, Gene. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that he was talking well, that was when he said that, that reminded me of the cast we had, you know, what, last month about that one of uh, your seniors brought up at the at the camp. Yeah. Yeah, yeah same thing. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think Jeez, that was good. You did a nice job, Paul. Yes. No, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks to Paul for, for setting that interview up and, uh, and, and carrying it on. And I'd also like to uh, officially dedicate this podcast because uh, as Shane mentioned, Master Kisei's in the country and he's also he's in Minnesota right now even as we speak doing our, one of our summer uh, camps and I unfortunately can't be there and neither can Shane and uh, I just want to say to all my people that uh, might be listening to our podcast, I hope you had a good camp. And there you have episode 36 of Karate Cafe. We can be reached at KarateCafe.com forums or KarateCafe at gmail.com uh, we've got some emails that people sent. We haven't had a chance to get to them. Hopefully next week or the week after we'll uh, we'll start reading some emails. So if you want yours read on the air, if you have an opinion, if you'd like to say something, if you have any ideas, once again, you can reach us at karatecafe at gmail.com.